Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show. This is the worst nightmare that any community can face, and we are hurting and we are seething right now as a community. Police say 13 people were shot, 10 of them killed Saturday afternoon at this tops friendly market in Northeast Buffalo. Crazy dead bodies inside the store. Tonight, authorities say they've arrested the alleged gunman, identified as an 18-year-old white male from Conklin, New York. The shooter was not from this community. In fact, the shooter traveled hours from outside this community to perpetrate this crime on the people of Buffalo. Three senior law enforcement sources tell NBC News authorities are now looking into if the suspect was motivated by white supremacist ideology and if he posted anything describing his intentions. He was very heavily armed. He had tactical gear. Sources say at least two rifles were recovered at the scene with the N-word apparently etched into one weapon. This was pure evil. It was straight up racially motivated hate crime. Tops Friendly Markets sharing a statement saying in part, we are shocked and deeply saddened by this senseless act of violence and our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. Authorities charging the suspect with murder in the first degree and seeking a sentence of life without parole. We've never seen demographic change like this. It's roughly the equivalent of a brand new city of Chicago every year a city populated entirely by poor people with limited education who can't speak English. And the question is, how is it good for America? Where exactly is all this criminal white supremacy, this right-wing domestic terrorism that poses, quote, the most lethal terrorist threat in the homeland? Where is it? Well, it, of course, it doesn't exist. Stop. Pause. Ten people at a grocery store. In a uh, black community in Buffalo, New York. And 18, I think he's now 19. But, and it was very interesting. Uh, I think Sam made, made this observation how some people in the media referred to the terrorist, the shooter, the killer, as a teenager. But if you remember, Michael Brown was identified as an adult when his incident took place. Media, check yourself. 18 years old, you're, you, you're not a teenager. You're grown and you're going to be charged as an adult. But I just thought I'd make that observation again listening and reading with a third ear.
But listen once again. Daryl Green is standing by with everything we need to listen to as it relates to these clips. An alleged manifesto, a planned attack, drove hours, hours, and indiscriminately just started killing people. Didn't know them, hadn't seen them. They woke up this morning like, I mean, woke up in the morning like you woke up this morning. Going to the grocery store. Going to the grocery store. And an 18-year-old man decides that he's going to drive hours and just indiscriminately kill black people. Pleads not guilty, but that doesn't make any difference. He And by the way, he uh, had also planned to, I guess, shoot up his high school from what I've been reading. Now, those are the facts. And then Tucker Carlson uses his platform to say the following. Play it again, Daryl. We've never seen demographic change like this. It's roughly the equivalent of a brand new city of Chicago every year, a city populated entirely by poor people with limited education who can't speak English. And the question is, how is it good for America? Where exactly is all this criminal white supremacy, this right wing domestic terrorism that poses, quote, the most lethal terrorist threat in the homeland? Where is it? Well, of course, it doesn't exist. It's in Buffalo. It was in Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. It was in Las Vegas. It doesn't exist. Wow. Yeah, sure. Chicago is not entirely populated by low-income people who can't speak who can't English. speak English that does not ad- truthfully describe Chicago the or, whole city and to me that that's a see that's just a little that's just a minor point it really is it it, it, it but but to say wow at what point 
at what point do we all say to the managers of Fox, the sponsors of Tucker Carlson's platform, at what point Do we all say enough is enough? At what point my thoughts are as follows. We don't know who is like this individual who did this. We don't know if they are in the grocery store parking lot. Are they on a metro train with you? This is what I thought about over the weekend. This is what I thought about over the weekend. We don't know who these terrorists are. We don't know when and where they will, will, will strike. When is enough enough? When is enough enough? Play the next clip, Daryl. You are exactly, not just the kind of person, but in Michigan specifically, what Donald Trump wants to change for next time. What are your warnings about 2024? That 2022 will decide whether we have a democracy in 2024. I mean, our ability to protect and defend democracy in 2020 depended entirely on people of integrity on both sides of the aisle protecting the will of the people, saying no when the president called and said, find me votes, and certifying elections despite threats uh, and violence uh, and challenges to those certification processes. So 2022 is when voters will decide who the players are going to be in 2024. And it's an opportunity for us to choose champions of democracy and reject those conspiracy theorists who very clearly would not certify an election they don't agree with. Um, But it remains to be seen what voters are going to do. And I, I hope, I'm hopeful that we can make the right choice, but it's our opportunity between now and Election Day to make clear to voters in states like Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, that democracy is on the line and their vote this year will determine its future. Nebraska, your state, does not have a so-called trigger law on the books, but there was an effort, as you know, to pass one. It failed by only two votes last month. The abortion ban that you tried to pass did not include any exceptions for rape or incest. So can you clarify, do you think that the state of Nebraska should require a young girl who was raped to carry that pregnancy to term? So Nebraska is a pro-life state. I believe life begins at conception, and those are babies too. 
So if Roe versus Wade, which was a horrible constitutional decision, uh, gets overturned by the Supreme Court, which we're hopeful of, here in Nebraska, we're going to take further steps to protect those preborn babies. Including in the case of rape or incest? They're still babies, too. Yes, they're still babies. So if Roe is overruled and overturned, uh, will you call a special session right away to ban abortion in Nebraska? Well, if we do get that uh, Roe versus Wade overturned, we will take. I will work with our Speaker of the Legislature to work on a special session and uh, do more to protect preborn babies. We'll have to wait and see what that decision is before we can take further steps, but that would certainly be my intention. Governor of uh, Nebraska. So if a woman is raped and impregnated, if a woman is impregnated, the egg is fertilized by a single sperm, a single egg, that is a baby. And the choice is not up to the woman. It's up to the state. Again, your comments. This is, this is what we're facing. This is what we're dealing with. This is what November 8th, 2022, is in part about. Next clip, Daryl. The whole idea, your point about um, institutions, I think we are in danger of destroying the institutions that are required for a free society. Uh, you can't have a, a, a civil society, a free society, without a stable legal system. Uh, you can't have one without stability in things like property or um, interpretation and impartial judiciary. Uh, and I've been at, in this business long enough to know just how fragile it is. And the institution that I'm a part of uh, if someone said that one line of one opinion would be leaked by anyone and you would say, that, oh, that's impossible. No one would ever do that. There's such a uh, belief in the rule of law, a belief in the court, a belief in what we were doing, that that was verboten. It was beyond anyone's understanding or at least anyone's uh, imagination that someone would do that. And look where we are, where now that trust or that belief is gone forever. Um, the, and when you lose that trust, especially in the institution that I'm in, uh, it changes the institution fundamentally. Uh, you begin to look over your shoulder. It's like kind of an infidelity uh, that you can explain it, but you can't undo it. Does that apply to your wife, Clarence Thomas? Does that apply to your wife? Never in the history 
of the United States Supreme Court has a spouse of a Supreme Court justice participated, financed, communicated with a group of people to overturn a legitimate election. And then he has the audacity to talk about faith in the institution and he won't even recuse himself of any future case that might be brought before him. Never in the history of the United States Supreme Court has a spouse overtly, openly participated in trying to overturn a legitimate election. And then he has the audacity to talk about losing faith in the institution, especially that which you have been involved in. Your comment. Next clip. That's it. Then let's get it started. Good morning. Madison with you. Blank Eagle. May 16th, lines are open, people are calling in. What happened in Buffalo is proof of white terrorism in America. And what's this media term that they've come up with? Replacement theory. Oh, I'm putting that on. Replacement theory. Break it down, Madison. I will. In essence, the majority population, as you heard Tucker Carlson try to explain what's going on in Chicago and this replacement theory, that White America, the population, is being replaced by people of color, black, Hispanic, etc. That is now a term the media has starting to use, replacement theory. And I have to admit, I watched... uh, uh, CNN, what is it, Reliable Source. I, I, I watch the show. I try to watch it every, every Sunday morning. And, and because they talk, you know, they have people on that, uh, you know, talk about the role of the media. And they kept talking about this new thing called replacement theory. That one demographic's going to replace the other. 
I tweet it, and I usually don't send tweets. I sort of let the team, you know, listen to what I say, and then Sam and Sherry and Daryl, our interns, are good at uh, just, you know, taking my comments and tweeting them out. But I thought, historically, and correct me if I'm wrong, I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, white America. And again, I'm generalizing for sake of conversation. Have y'all forgotten that, <laughs> now think about this, in a way it's kind of humorous, that, you, that, 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 that white folks were a minority when they landed on these shores? Repeat that, would you? <clears throat> no problem. That white people were the minority when they landed on these shores. And then I said, you know what goes around? Comes around. This isn't about demographics. It's about power. In South Africa, the minority was white. And they controlled the legal, political, and economic institutions of the majority. I think it was Dr. King in an interview many, many years ago, before he was, I mean, I think it was an interview he had done, and someone asked him to define integration. And he said, as I remember, and I'm paraphrasing, that integration is the sharing of power, resources, and responsibility. It's not about who you live next door to. It's not about who you marry. It's not about who you go to school with. Brown versus Board of Education was about power, resources, and responsibility. That's what you integrate. Replacement theory. Boy, that's a... That, and, and, then, and then what bothered me when I was listening and watching Reliable Source, <laughs> I, um, they talked as if the discussion was something new. And I said to Sherry, you know what they should do more on these uh, network news cable shows? They ought to interview more of us. We've been talking about this. We've been discussing this and, and, and its impact for years. For years. 
for years. And then, and now all of a sudden, oh, we've discovered replacement theory. Dr. Francis Welsing, define racism. We have a clip from her. I'll play it later on in the show. Dr. Francis Welsing. Most, I got to tell you something. Most of these commentators and these anchors, they don't know who Dr. Welsing was. They don't know who she was. Very seldom would they have her on the shows. I would have people call and say, would you come on the show as a guest and 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 uh, discuss this. I said, no, you know who you really ought to get is Dr. Francis Welsing. Who? And then when they would re- read her clear, poignant definition of racism, she wouldn't be invited. And I think in large part because they... They just couldn't interpret. They couldn't comprehend what she said. It is, wait till you hear it, because we have a clip. We have a clip of, of her describing it. It is about, in large part, the fear of, what does she call it? Genetic Annihilation. annihilation. But we'll get into that later. If you would have told me growing up in uh, Ohio uh, that I would know the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian, uh, I would have said, oh, you got to be kidding. But I do know Lonnie Bunch, Dr. Lonnie G. Bunch III, who oversees 21 museums, man, and two new museums in development. Uh, thank you for uh, for being oh, on on with me, Lonnie. How are you this morning? I am fine, but you know, I got to tell you, you must have a low bar if it's important being me, me, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, man, you are you are up there. You really are are up there at the top. But uh, but uh, you know, we're also just you know, we just are so proud of the work that you're doing. Now, I'm going to get right to. One of the things that caught my attention a couple of weeks ago and that you are directing all 21 Smithsonian museums to return any items or artifacts, now get this, that were stolen, <laughs> looted, or unethically acquired. Wait a minute, are you admitting that the Smithsonian stole, looted, <laughs> Uh, artifacts that are now in the museums? What I'm admitting is that the Smithsonian has to have the highest ethical standards. And, you know, things are collected in a variety of ways over the last 175 years. And all I want to do is make sure that we have those standards. And if there are things that, you know, were stolen um, or things that we're not sure of the provenance, if we can, and you can get them back to the people, to the owners, to the country, that's the way to do it. My goal no, uh, here is, uh, go ahead. No, I said my goal is simple. My goal is to say that I want the Smithsonian to represent the best of what museums can be around the world, and part of that being best is saying we will make sure that we will ethically share and ethically return things if we have to. Now, do you give people the option 
once you've proven where they've come from or who they've come from, the option to to bring them back to the original owner or country, and, and uh, it's up to them can whether they want them or not. So here's how it works. First of okay. all, you know, ninety nine percent of what the Smithsonian has has been achieved ethically, right? You okay. Know, people gave, so it's not like um, you know ninety percent of the Smithsonian's looted art. But what I think we've done is, you know, we've returned material to Native American communities. Um, and so it's just really building on that. And the way it works is this. Like, let's say there's something from an African country. We would then work with the Minister of Culture, the African um, leadership, and to determine, um, should it be returned? And if it should be, returned to whom? Or often they'll say, Look, keep it in the Smithsonian because you give it greater visibility and you can protect it. So it really, it's a variety of ways people react. But the goal is to really figure out if it is something, you know, for example, one of the things we're looking at are the Benin bronzes. These are this amazing creative artwork that we know that some of it was taken by the British when they invaded the Empire of Benin in 1897. So we've done a lot of research to say, okay, some of these are really from there, others are not. So let's separate that out. And what we did is we reached out to the Oba of Benin, as well as the leadership of Nigeria, um, and said that what we'd like to do is, if this is something you want, we'll return ownership of all of these to you, and some of those will actually return. But others, you, they want us to keep in the United States to talk about the process of where these things, how these things were achieved, and, and also to be able to make sure that they're visib- visited by millions of people. So, and, 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 But you also raise a very good point, too, Lonnie Bunch, and that is um, they, they can be maintained because that's one of the things that the Smithsonian does extremely well. You maintain these items, and that's not easy, is it? No. no. I mean, we have... You know, to be honest, I spend sort of almost 30% of the budget on maintaining things, um, storing them, keeping them safe. And so we have the most amazing people who know how to do this. So part of it is making sure that if we return things, that they can be taken care of. Um, the, let me ask about, about um, uh, does, how did this come about? I, I, you know, I mean, this this just you just didn't come, this didn't come out of the clear blue sky. Well, how did this the, this new policy develop? Well, I think what happened was is that I wanted to just sort of look and make sure that we were leading in moral issues as well as in museum issues. So we put together a group of some of my best curators and scholars and said, um, help me create a policy. Because we have returned things in the past, but I wanted it to be not ad hoc, but as an overarching policy. So we put that together, and then basically it allows me to say that if there's material that we have questions, we can do the research on, or if somebody sends us, you know, a country asks us about particular artifacts, we can look at this. So I think the key is just that I wanted us to be prepared to basically be the kind of institution that models the behavior I expect from all museums around the world. And and then the other question is, who pays for this? <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> that's the other other factor. Who pays for these um, this material being returned? I do. Oh. Um, you know, I think it's important that 
if there is material that is that was taken not even by us you know i mean for example if you look at the benin bronzes they were stolen by the british army some right. were then given to collectors over years maybe a collector might have given them to the smithsonian you know so basically we had to trace that lineage but ultimately if there's something that returns we will pay for it all right okay uh, now and finally uh anything new down the road that uh we should be looking for and encouraging people to uh, visit the Smithsonian. You guys have so much going for you. It is one of my favorite uh, institutions here in Washington. Well, you know, I think there's so much. I mean, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a place that I kind of care about, has. <laughs> I, I wonder why. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Each one of those bricks in that building's got my sweat, but uh, you and know, blood. <laughs> really, uh, but there's an amazing exhibition on Reconstruction that really helps us understand that amazing period of possibility when you know four million African Americans gained their freedom, but how did they have to then struggle for fairness? And what happened when Reconstruction ended? It's a brilliant show, and then obviously down the road, I'm working on two new museums. Uh, a Smithsonian American Women's History Museum and a National Museum of the American Latino. And you'll begin to see evidence of those moving forward. So there's just a lot of exciting work going on at the Smithsonian. All right. I will let you go and appreciate you coming on and explaining. And, and just glad you the you, you had that conscience to to say, you know, some of this, if folks want this back, it, it, you know, it's rightfully yours and should be returned. So I, I appreciate you coming on and explaining to our audience uh, how this all came about and its well, purpose. Okay. Oh, thank you. And, you know, it really comes from Spike Leaks. You know, do the right thing. Really? <laughs> uh, oh, okay, do the right thing. always trying to do the right thing. All right, man, God Take bless. Take care, my friend. All right, thank you, too. You can listen to yours truly, Madison the Black Eagle, live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.